Welcome to another episode of 97X, Rumblings from the Big Bush, and we're very excited to have a gentleman join us who is billed by a former 97X program director and legendary label man himself, Jetson, as a legendary promo guy. Mike Jacobs, welcome to the show. Hi, glad to be here. So, Mike, if you could just tell us how uh, your path Tell us about your career path and how it intersected with 97X. Well, I started out, I, I, I did independent promotion for a long, long time uh, in the very, very early days of the alternative format. And uh, I worked with Rick Carroll, who started K-Rock. And I, I knew Rick before he started K-Rock, and we managed bands together and stuff. And that goes back to the 70s when he was a top 40 programmer. He started K-Rock. I think it was 79 or 80. And anyway, uh, I did end independent promotion for a long time until I ultimately ended up with my own label. I had a joint venture label with Universal called Way Cool, where I signed Blink-182, and I put out a specials record, and I had a band called The Y Store that had a pretty big record. And then I became a partner in Trauma, where we did uh, Bush and No Doubt, and after that, I, I retired when my son, so I could go to my son's little league games. I just sold out my uh, piece of both of them and did everything I could to make make them want to pay anything to make me go away. So I did. And uh, now I do it vicariously through my son who does promotion, which I never expected because he, he went to USC and I never went to very far in college because I was at Kent State on May 4th, 1970. That was the last day I went to school. So there's another Ohio, my other connection to Ohio. Not a good one, but anyway, so during that period, Waxy was there. I was doing independent promotion for bands like The Offspring, Rancid, Nine Inch Nails before they were on Interscope. And I used to go down there a lot. Now, are, are you an Ohio native? No, uh, uh-uh. I, I was known what, what I was done, what was called a, at that time an outside agitator. But a lot of people that were there then, there's still, you know, Joe Walsh was there, Chrissy Hind was there at Kent. Uh, yeah, I still communicate with a lot of people from Kent. The the Devo folks and Per Ubu folks, I think. Is Mark and, and Jerry were there. That's very true. Yeah. I haven't um, talked to them in ages, but yeah. One thing, when you mentioned uh, the 97X years, what connected you, uh, looking at your history and knowing a little bit about your history and Doug and Linda, the owners of, of 97X, mm. you guys are kind of similar. I mean, how did you guys click together as, I don't want to say a team, but as as a promoter and a, and a station? Uh, honestly, I, I didn't know them then. I knew, I knew Phil. And I knew uh, Ron Jetson, and I never met Doug until after him and Linda sold the station, honestly. Oh, no, you know what? In 1998, we used to give an award called the Rick Carroll Radio Innovator of the Year Award, and we, we gave him the award, I think, in 1998. That was the first time I met him. Uh, well, first of all, tell us about what the Rick Carroll Award is about, and and, and how were you instrumental in, in working with them? Because... Uh, in my opinion, yes, they, they, they should should win that award, and I'm glad you were, you helped them out with that. Yeah, it was Jetson's suggestion. We used to pick somebody every year, 
and then we'd have a big dinner where we'd make the labels pay $500 a plate for rubber chicken, but it, it raised money for a scholarship fund at Sacramento State College where Rick had gone that still exists. And we give scholarships every year. Rick's been gone dead 30 years and we still give that scholarship every year. That year, Ron called me and said, you know, what about Doug Baylog? He owned Waxing. I said, wow, that's a really good idea. And that was the first time I met him. And like I said, we'd have this dinner and we'd give the awards. And that was the first time I, I, I met them. But it, uh, back in the day before that, I used to go down to Oxford and make that drive. I used to love making that drive out to Oxford, down that little two-lane road and little quaint houses. And I have very fond memories of it. And then have all, we, there were only 12 alternative stations then, if that all the bands it was a routing place to go if you want to get played on the radio you need radio doesn't have to play your records they can say well maybe we won't play it you know you have to be ready to do some level of promotion whether it's just interviews or or beyond that and if bands don't want to do that i would just tell them fine okay you write songs and you can play them for your friends at home in your living room that's fine with me but don't tell me you want to be on the radio and then give me this punk rock bullshit that you don't want to play that game you know it's it's a two-way street if you want to get played on the radio you know not talking about anything funny stuff but radio stations need shows they need uh interviews and you know even more so today back then it was you know it it was pretty simple just do some interviews have a dinner with these whatever it was you know, there's the same thing with no effects. I, Fat Mike wrote a song called Please Play the Song on the Radio. But Fat Mike was never going to be somebody I would ever take to a radio station because he would just make make them hate him <laughs> because he's so out of his mind. But he, you know, he's a great, great guy. You know, then, then there were people like I brought uh, Sublime to MCA and those guys were total morons and dimwits and just a, a major pain in the ass. And the best thing that ever happened to them was Bradley dying or they never would have been big because he, everywhere they went, they made enemies. I remember them wow. having Kevin Weatherly asking me to have it, throwing them out of a weenie roast for destroying a dressing room. So, you know, it's a two way street. You want to play the game, you can make money and sell records, but uh, don't be an asshole. You got to uh, realize that they're, they're doing you, a favor and there, there's there's plenty of records you know you can only play 12 an hour you don't have to play yours yeah, yeah. without a doubt i mean that like i look at it as like there are there are certain things in any job even in your dream job there are some things that are you just come with it that aren't that much fun but they allow you to do the other things and you know so doing an interview with a radio station allows you to play at places like bogarts and tour the country and tour other countries and things like that so it's small price to pay right. i mean the offspring. I talk to Dexter almost every day. They just have a new their first record in twelve years out. You know he's doing everything, and they've been doing this for twenty five years. A lot of bands like I think they don't have to do anything anymore, and he's working harder than he than he ever has. But uh, some bands weren't just weren't cut out for that. You know the the, the guy. The only reason the guys in uh, Sublime had a hit was because a guy named David Kahn, who's an amazing producer, took. Bradley could sing like an angel, but he 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 wasn't a songwriter. And David 
cobbled that stuff together in the studio and made those songs, but they were just drunken morons. And uh, everywhere you went, they made people hate them. And it it was, uh, you know, well, it wasn't a fun thing. It was one of the two, maybe three things that I bailed on this called managers and told, you know, I'm, I'm out. What about with 97X and some of those initial radio stations that were key to this, I guess, new format? Uh, they, it was called alternative rock, modern rock, college rock, whatever mm-hmm. it was. You know, how how did this original, you know, core stations, you got, you know, Boston, you get, you, you know, K-Rock, the, the, the king of them all. Um, how were they, uh, FNX, uh, instrumental in breaking the format and making it as big as it was, especially in the late eighties and, and through the nineties. Well, because when I, I remember very clearly, Rick came back from Hawaii after he got fired from KZY, this top 40 job. And he went to Hawaii and laid on the beach, came back and he goes, I'm going to start a radio station where I'm going to play records. Nobody ever heard before. But I'm going to play them in top 40 rotations, which was an anomaly to most alternative stations actually. And, and I'm going to have personalities like on Top 40 Radio. We had Jed and we had Freddie and Dusty and some of the best jocks the format ever had. But the main thing was that they all played music that you couldn't hear anywhere else. And you, you, even most of most of them had awful signals. FNX had an awful signal. Woxie, you couldn't really hear it in Cincinnati. K-Rock, you couldn't hear it. If you were at the Roxy on Sunset, you couldn't hear it. And the amazing engineer, Scott Mason went up and, you know, he'd do magic with the transmitter, but none of these stations were flamethrowers, but kids would wear aluminum hats if they had to, to be able to hear them, you know, and they played music nobody else heard and they created demand for that music. And, you know, the, the, the record companies to break new bands back in the day when they did break new bands, which doesn't happen anymore. I can't name you. I can name you one band in the last 15 years or the alternative radio turned into an artist you know now it's about songs but back then at k-rock there was everything from the cure and the pesh mode and all that stuff to i remember the first time i brought nine inch nails in there and i had like a hole and i brought trent up with me and i remember rick carroll looking at me going you want me to play this on the fucking radio and uh but you know all those stations had that in common that they were not afraid to play music that nobody else would play that's the common thread on that of those original 12 were college stations by the way which you mentioned which is true it was wbru and providence i can't remember them all but the, there was there was a couple on that panel we used to have big arguments about it how can we have college stations on this panel and well because we only have 12 stations you know and now there's 70 and you know but 68 of them are pure garbage and the format's pretty much dying right now So those were the heydays. I I do want to take a step back, though, Mike, and and just could you explain a little bit the role of an independent promoter? So, like, are the labels engaging you to promote the bands or the bands come to you? How how does that work? Well, so, for instance, let's take Epitaph Records, a great independent label. They didn't have a promotion staff. The independent promoter now means a whole different thing. And it actually meant a whole different thing before that. It top 40 it was a very ugly word, but a label like Epitaph didn't have a promotion department. They never got records played on the radio. And Brett Gerwitz, who owns Epitaph and also happens to be in Bad Religion, called me up and said, 
you need to come hear this 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 song this band so i went up there this little warehouse and brett and a guy named andy calkin who now runs a label called anti for brett it's one of the most awesome labels play me come out and play and i said yeah that's yeah but we need to make a cd single cd single what's that we can't do that and I, just listen to what i say and i'll get this record played for you i went to k-rock a couple of days later went in played it for rick and it was on the radio in my, when i was driving home in my car two hours later uh <laughs> they didn't have a promotion department so they'd hire me major labels would would reach out but generally it was like a, the first few interscope records they hadn't built a staff yet so i worked their first few records which were like the fragile nine inch nails record the primus record as i recall and back back then everybody didn't have a, a promotion department or a, or a promotion staff and some of the majors didn't have people that knew the alternative format so the difference between being an independent back then and working for a label was either there were labels that didn't have promotion departments, but if you worked for a label and they handed you a record, you had to make believe you loved it. Whether because you had no participation in picking the song and A&R, signing the band, nothing. And okay. so you had to lie. I never lied. I always told the truth whether people liked it or not. And a good example of that is there was a record, I don't remember what year this was, was it 89 or 91, David Bowie put out a re- the first Tin Machine record, and his manager called me, actually David had his own management company, the guy ran it, called me, and said, we need to, the record company doesn't think they can get this record played, can you get this record played? I said, I think so, it's fucking David Bowie. So I went and I met with them, and David was trying to make believe he wasn't David Bowie. And it's like, I'm just a guy in a band, and they didn't play any Bowie songs at the set. Hunting Tony and Reeves, and, and it, even when I set up interviews, he'd want to bring the other three guys. So finally, and, and, and there's there a couple of people around him all the time. Now, this is before Let's Dance, and when he really went into the, the uh, superstar category, but he was still David Bowie. And alternative, that meant something. Mm-hmm. And finally, one day, I got him and I pulled him aside and I said, David, nobody likes this fucking record. Nobody, it sucks for radio. It ain't going to get played. You're still David Bowie. I need you to do one phoner every day. And I promise you, every phoner you do, I will get a fucking ad because you're David Bowie. Nobody gives a shit what Reeves or Hunt or Tony believes or thinks. This is how we get the record played. Yes or no? He said, yeah did like 15 phoners got 15 ads started the record we were one of those stations that i remember david boy about that era doing the interview for tin machine I was yeah at the station i remember the time. david was i have there's a tape somewhere of david telling phil some kind of i don't know like trying to calm him down telling him some story or something before the interview started because he was so nervous that's a great to talk story david Oh, yeah. And you got some major cojones there, my friend, telling David Bowie that his uh, music wasn't that great. The truth is, if you tell the truth all the time, people might not like it when you do it, but they'll always respect you. That's true. After that, the next time I saw David, he's like, yep, you were fucking right. I'm I'm just surprised you didn't consider the angle of, hey, two guys in Tin Machine are the sons of Soupy Sales. Yeah, right, huh? And you know what? <laughs> Reeves is one of the best guitar players in, in the world. He, he's amazing and all that stuff. But nobody gives a fuck. You're still David Bowie. And I, I have a picture at 91X with David. They even got him to do station IDs. And he even did a 91X, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And 
all everything, and, and Kevin Stapleford lost it. Now, How, did you find working with 97X pretty easy as far as being uh, a program directors, Phil, Jetson, uh, all the people there that, that, that helped program that station while you were working as a promotions uh, person? Did you find that they were pretty accepting to a, a wide range of music, or, or, or were they about the same? Well, it comes down to the person. Stations? I mean, the, the job of doing radio promotion is <clears throat> going somewhere where their job is usually to say no and turning no into yes. Depends on the person. They, you don't know if they're going to like the song when they walk in. You have to put the element in their head of, well, you know, I, I, you, you might be wrong. Why don't you let your listeners find out? And, you know, it, it's a little bit of a cat and mouse game. But I wouldn't. Yeah, I don't think easy is the word. It's not supposed to be easy. You know, you can only play twelve records an hour. You have to be careful what you pick. And certain stations have a certain sound, and some records fit and some don't. You know, so you, you're not going to bat a thousand, right? And, doesn't mean you dislike that person because you know Phil happened to be a great music guy. He loved all kinds of music. Yeah, the same thing with Jetson. But that doesn't mean every record's a fit. And even records that ended up being huge acts, when they start, you know, Nine Inch Nails being a really good example. I mean, if you go back to what was that, 1989? That sounded crazy to be on the radio. It had like a hole yeah. and down in it. Like nobody could imagine that being played on the radio. Now it's no, no, it's tame, you know. So it wasn't about if people were easy to work with. It was if you had a personal relationship with them, and they respected your opinion, and they would listen to what you you had to say and what you brought them. That's all. And and how did you develop your ear? Like, how did you know when you know, like Brett Gerwitz invites you over, and you hear that first song, and it's like, oh yeah, I can work with this. But and which, by the way, if I thought something didn't work, I would say no. I mean, you have people. You know, anybody that walks in the door, like, oh, yeah, okay, give me this much money and I'll work that record for you. I, I, I made my business by having records that ended up being hits and that I was right more than I was wrong and I had a good batting average. And how did I have it? I don't know. I just had a, a, a good ear for what would be a, a, a radio hit, an alternative that would be a, a, be a fit. That, that's just a gut instinct thing. I can see how you and Doug Baylog could click now. You, you mentioned earlier you you and Doug still still uh, chat back and forth. Oh yeah, we we text and email and talk on the phone sometimes. And to do something like that, you had to some kind of a vision. Rick Carroll had a vision to create K Rock. They had a Doug and Linda had a vision to create Waxy. At FNX, the guy that owned the Phoenix, I can't think of his name that owned FNX. He had a vision to create that radio station. He let Max and those guys run it like they wanted to. But now they're all owned by corporations. There is no such thing as vision. And, and to me, that's part of the problem uh, anymore. Is is the corporations well, it's not a running it all? It's has... done. I mean, trust me, yeah. it, it, it's beyond the problem. It, it, it's, yeah. a, it, it's a format that ceases to exist. Yeah, I can yeah, name you three to... stations that, if I was still working, I would bother to take a record and trust that person's ears. There's WWCD in Columbus. The guy that owns that, Randy Malloy, guy's amazing. He owns it. It's totally independent. You have X96 in Salt Lake City where it's been there for 30, 35 years. And it's a, 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 like number one, 18 to 34 in that market. And 91X in San Diego, which Rick Carroll and I had a lot to do with. We put that station on the air. We flipped the format on that. Outside of those three, I couldn't name you another one. So what, so what do bands do these days to, to get their music out? 
to get it heard to to build up a brand they suffer you know <laughs> labels i mean labels have their priorities and they, they take the the path of least resistance to me before the records i always used to say the records that sounded like they least belonged on the radio would have the potential to be the biggest hit so I mean, who thought that a punk rock song you know the offspring that that could ever be a hit or i remember going in to k-rock the first time with just a girl you know jimmy i dropped them and we had a joint venture with uh interscope i took just a girl and kevin saying i don't get it a chick singing sky but no you're wrong put it on the fucking radio uh so many instances of that the records that sound like they least belong in the radio can, can be the biggest hit and as i was telling you my son works for a label does promotion they have some really good artists it's really really difficult at commercial radio it's diametrically opposed to what it was originally started but you know they're owned by corporations and that's how it works i was going to ask you that because because your son must have to go about his job totally different than the way you had to go about your job back in the day Absolutely, but it, he he he's got much more patience than I do. <laughs> he, he's got patience from his mom. I I just kind of barnstormed my way through it and didn't give a fuck if people liked me or hated me. I just I'm right. He's very patient. You and they make meticulous plans, and I was never a detail guy. Yeah, he's very much the opposite of how I did it. I mean, he learned some basic things from me, which I didn't really realize at the time, but. You know, a kid that grew up with, you know, at eight years old, being in mosh pits with guys like Lars and Tim and having tour buses parked in front of the house. I guess it shouldn't be a surprise that he grew up loving music, but I never expected yeah. he'd do radio promotion. But it's, yeah, it's a, it's a whole different animal. Also today you have metrics to use. It's not just walking in and go, I think this is a hit. Listen to this song. This is great. You know my track record, blah, blah, blah. You have the metrics of streaming and all the different numbers to use. And those numbers, you know, the smart guys look at them. The dumb guys don't. Unfortunately, the dumb guys outnumber the smart guys now. So I, I was fortunate enough that I, my batting average I, was good and I was able to make a deal and steal enough money from the corporations that I could uh, retire and get out and go to my kids' little league games and not have to bash my head against the wall with these morons and <clears throat> run it now. <laughs> I think I think we need to put you back in charge of radio, Mike. I think it'd be a lot better for everybody. I love what you're talking about. Well, if, if, if you can raise, raise an army. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, this has been a treat to talk to you. We appreciate your, your insight into the business, and we thank you for taking time out of your day to, uh, to chat welcome. with two schmucks sitting in our basements talking about the good old days at 97X. And, and an old schmuck sitting in California reflecting on when it used to be fun. It, it's fun to think about those times and uh, also sad that they'll never, it'll never be like that again. Yeah, so there's two sides to it. 97X. Guys, are you feeling this? Are you feeling this? I'm feeling it. I'm definitely feeling it. I felt something earlier, but I was afraid to bring it up. Rumblings from the Big Bush.